Thank you, Nathan. Uh, good morning, everyone. It is, a, it is a privilege and a pleasure to be with you this morning. Uh, I, want to, um, I want to thank you for being here. There's a lot of places you could have been, a whole lot of places, especially on a beautiful October day. A lot of places you could have been, but God has you here, and you have followed his leading, and you have come to this place, and, and I'm thankful, thankful for that. It is a privilege when we get to come into the house of the Lord to worship him together. We are in the book of Acts in our series, um, The Great Commission in Action. Uh, we're going to be in chapter 2 this morning, so go ahead and open your Bibles or your devices, however else you're reading uh, this passage. Uh, it, this has often been called the book of Acts. It's been called the Acts of the Apostles. I think a more appropriate name might be the Acts of the Holy Spirit. And we'll see that as we continue to go through the book of Acts for the next several months. We're in chapter 2 uh, on, on this morning. We're going to read the first um, 15 verses of chapter 2 and then verses 36 to 41. So follow along with me if you would. This this is the word of the Lord. When the day of Pentecost arrived, they were all together in one place. And suddenly there came from heaven a sound like a mighty rushing wind, and it filled the entire house where they were sitting. And divided tongues as a fire appeared to them and rested on each one of them. And they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak in other tongues as the Spirit gave them utterance. Now there were dwelling in Jerusalem Jews, devout men from every nation under heaven. And at this time the multitude came together and they were bewildered because each one was hearing them speak in his own language. And they were amazed and astonished, saying, Are not all these who are speaking Galileans? And how is it that we hear each of us in his own native language? Parthians and Medes and Elamites and residents of Mesopotamia... Judea and Cappadocia, Pontus and Asia, Phrygia and Pamphylia, Egypt and the parts of Libya belonging to Cyrene, and visitors from Rome, both Jews and proselytes, Cretans and Arabians. We hear them telling us in our own tongues the mighty works of God. And all were amazed and perplexed, saying to one another, What does this mean? But others, mocking, said, oh, They are filled with new wine. And Peter, Standing with the eleven, lifted up his voice and addressed them. Men of Judea and all who dwell in Jerusalem, let this be known to you and give ear to my words. For these people are not drunk as you suppose, since it is only the third hour of the day. Let's skip down to verse 36. Let all the house of Israel therefore know for certain that God has made him both Lord and Christ, this Jesus whom you crucified. Now when they heard this, they were cut to the heart, and they said to Peter and the rest of the apostles, brothers, what shall we do? And Peter said to them, repent and be baptized, every one of you in the name of Jesus Christ, for the forgiveness of your sins, and you receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. For the promises for you and for your children and for all who are far off, everyone whom the Lord our God calls himself. And with many other words, he bore witness and continued to exhort them, saying, Save yourselves from this crooked generation. So those who received his word were baptized, and there were added that day about 3,000 souls. Let's go to the Father in prayer. Lord, thank you for letting us come to you in prayer this morning. 
Father, thank you for your word. Lord, to say thank you for you, um, that's not enough. That's all I've got. Lord, thank you. Father, Lord, the, the longer... The longer I'm a believer and open your word to preach, the less qualified I feel to proclaim your word. Especially as I look at this and the coming of the Holy Spirit. Father, I pray that you would use this broken vessel, this crooked stick. Father, that you would strike a straight blow. Lord, that you would pour out clean, living water as you did through Peter on that day. That you would transform us and our city with the gospel of Jesus Christ through the power of the Holy Spirit for your glory and for our good. In the name of Jesus Christ, we pray. Amen. Amen. My friends, as we dive into this passage and we look at the power and, the, and we look at Peter and we look at the people that were transformed, I think it's, it's important that we go back to where they were on that day and we put ourselves in their space, in their place. I don't know how many people are in here right now this morning, 130, 140, social distanced, six feet apart and, you know, then some wearing masks and all that kind of stuff. On that day, you had 120 people in one upper room together, 120 of them, men and women, the apostles, the new apostle Matthias. You had some other newcomers. You had the brothers of Jesus Christ would have been in that room. They were not believers before the crucifixion, but we know from chapter 1, I think it's in verse 14, that Mary, the mother of Jesus, and the brothers of Jesus were in that room with them. So you've got 120 believers, followers of Jesus Christ in this upper, upper room crammed in there. These were men and women whose lives had been transformed by the gospel of Jesus Christ. Some of them had been healed of, of diseases and infirmities, blindness, that kind of thing. Some of them had had demons cast out of them. All of them had been transformed by the gospel of Jesus Christ and called to a new life. They had put their hope in Jesus. They had left behind their means of earning a living. Peter, James, John, Andrew left behind their jobs as commercial fishermen. Matthew left behind his role as well as the, the, the Jerusalem kingpin of the Roman mafia. You know, taking taxes from his fellow Jews and giving them to the Romans. The shaker, the one that shook down everyone on the block. He, he, he left all that behind. He can't go back. Their lives were transformed as they followed Jesus, and then Jesus is crucified. And their hopes are dashed, but just for a short time. We know from the Gospels that as he's crucified, they all flee, flee and they go back to their homes. But then he's raised from the dead, and hope is renewed. And they spend about 40 days with him, or parts of 40 days with him, some all together, some in parts. But they spend 40 days with him, and then they see him ascend up into the heavens in Acts chapter 1, verse 8 through 10. And confusion hits again. He tells them, wait, just wait. He promised them the helper, the comforter, the counselor. He said, if I don't go away, I can't send you this helper. 
He promises them that you will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes upon you and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and the uttermost parts of the earth. But then he's gone. We know a bit of their dismay because they're standing there in Acts 1 looking up into heaven. And two angels show up and say, why are you looking for him up there? He's gone. So then they find themselves in the upper room. And the first day, maybe they're waiting, you know, in hopeful anticipation. And, and the second day is the same. But by the fourth or fifth or sixth or seventh day, look, they're human, just like you and me. And they're probably beginning to wonder, has Jesus left us alone? Do you ever feel like Jesus has left you alone? I read a blog post just last week of someone that was asking a question of a friend of mine, a fellow PCA pastor, and she's asking him, where is this Jesus? You talk about Jesus, but where is this Jesus? I don't see him anywhere in my world. I feel so alone. During these times of isolation that have been brought to us by COVID, thank you very much, people are feeling more alone than ever. Suicide is on the uptick in a huge way. I think they were probably feeling somewhat alone and wondering if Jesus left them alone. I think they're probably wondering, some of them, did that forgiveness stick? You know, Peter had denied Jesus three times and Jesus had restored him in John chapter 20. But did the forgiveness stick? Is it real? I mean, where is this Jesus to remind me that I'm forgiven? Do you ever wonder if you're really forgiven? And they've got to be wondering, okay, he told us that we're going to be his witnesses in Jerusalem and in Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the world. But we saw what happened when he talked about himself. They killed him. How are we going to do what he's called us to do? Where's the power to walk in this new way of living that Jesus has told us to walk in? There's a gap here. Jesus has said, this is how you're going to live. This is who you are. You're not alone. I'm with you. You're forgiven. Walk in this new way. And yet he's gone. There's a gap. And into this gap roars, I mean, roars the Holy Spirit. He roars. Chapter 2 of Acts, and verse 1 and 2, speaks of this, this mighty rushing wind that comes into the upper room, and it fills the room with a roar. I wonder what that roar was like. I get the, I get the feeling that it was like a, the sound of a tornado. Anyone here ever been in a tornado? Anybody? I, I, oh, there's one hand back there. There's, okay, so the rest of y'all are obviously not from the south. Um, so we have tornadoes in the south. And I, I, I've been close enough to one, as close as that door, and I know what they sound like. And it is a mighty rushing wind, and it will, it will strike fear into your bones. And it fills everything. It's like, it's like having a diesel locomotive in your living room. I think this is what they heard, the power of the Holy Spirit entering into the upper room. 
The passage goes on. It says as the Holy Spirit comes rushing into the room, tongues of fire uh, rest on them. Now, this is different than the tongues that we're going to look at in a moment where they, they spoke in these different tongues. It's different than the tongues that Paul speaks of in 1 Corinthians 12, 13, and 14. This is different. This is flames, fire, something like fire, flames that are resting on each one of them. And it resembled tongues, divided tongues in the way that it appeared. Now, we don't know if it was a little bitty tongue flame that was resting on their forehead, you know, top of their head. We don't know if it enveloped them. We don't know anything like that. So you can put any type picture you want to in your head. It's okay. We don't know that, but we do know that it was evident enough that they took notice. At some point in here, they left the upper room and they stepped outside into the crowd. The noise was such that it brought people from all parts of Jerusalem. We, we see in this passage in verse 5 that it brought people from all parts of Jerusalem to gather around them. Thousands and thousands of people would have been in the city for Pentecost. Tens of thousands would have been there in the city. And they come around and they're wondering, what's going on here? Let's stop here for a moment. Jesus had promised them that you'll receive power when the Holy Spirit comes upon you. He had promised them earlier in verse four, or chapter 14 of John that the Holy Spirit's coming. Who is this Holy Spirit? Let's take a moment here. Now, we're not going to talk about everything there is to learn about the Holy Spirit. We can't do that today in one sermon. We can't do that in one year's worth of sermons. But we're going to, what we're going to see as we go through the book of Acts, that it really is the acts of the Holy Spirit. Who is the Holy Spirit? He's the third person of the Trinity. Like God the Father and God the Son, he is not an it. He is a person. Not a person as in human, as in people like you and I are, but person as opposed to being an it. The Holy Spirit is not a thing. He has personality. He has, he has sadness. He has love. He is God. Not just a part of God. He is God. He is equal in substance and power with Jesus the Son and God the Father. Different in function. The Father initiates salvation. The Son, Jesus, uh, carries it out. The Holy Spirit applies it. He's different in function. We'll see more of his functions in a moment. The Holy Spirit is not a force. One of the greatest trav travesties that have come out of the last 30 or 40 years is that we have somehow begun to think of the Holy Spirit as if he's something from Star Wars. May the force be with you. <laughs> My friends, Jesus Christ is the Son of God. God the Father is God the Father. The Holy Spirit is God. He is not a force. He's not an it. He's not a thing. He's not a demon. He's not an angel. He's God. We also know that he's eternal. Just as God the Father and God the Son is eternal, God the Holy Spirit is eternal. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. The earth was without form and void. Darkness was upon the face of the deep, and the Spirit of God hovered over the face of the waters. The Spirit of God was, was present in creation. He was one of those that was doing the creating. We know that God the Father was there. We know God the Spirit was there. We know God the Son was there from John chapter 1. In the beginning was the Word. The Word was with God. The Word was God. He was with God in the beginning. It goes on. It talks about nothing was created that was not created through Him, the Son. 
So the Spirit of God, the Son of God, and God the Father himself are all active there in creation, equal in power and substance, different in function, eternal, not created. The Son of God was not created. The Holy Spirit was not created. God the Father was not created. They are eternal past. The Holy Spirit is not something, a person, a force thing, anything like that, that just appears suddenly in the New Testament. Holy Spirit was very present in the Old Testament. We just saw from Genesis chapter 1. He was present in creation. And then as the Jews are leaving Egypt and traveling across the desert and the wilderness, they are led by what? A cloud by day and a pillar of fire by night. Holy Spirit is leading them. Holy Spirit is very present in the Old Testament, not just the New Testament. The Holy Spirit is the one that indwells all Christians. One of my children that had become a believer when she was about four, I think it was, looked at me one day and we're riding down the road and, and she says, so, so daddy, so how is it that this Jesus lives in me? Because if he did, he would be sticking out my shoulders. At which point, I'll, oh, oh no. <laughs> I need some better answers. Great question. We're indwelt by the Holy Spirit. Holy Spirit is spoken of as a third person of the Trinity, but he is, that doesn't mean he's third most important in the Trinity at all. There's not an importance thing here. The Holy Spirit is the one that indwells us. In Romans chapter 8, 1 Corinthians 3, 16, John chapter 14, the Holy Spirit lives in you. My friends, do we, I don't know about you, but that still blows me away. I've been a believer for 41 years almost. Uh, I've been in ministry for, I don't know, 25, 26, 27 years, something like that. I still don't get it. That the same God that created the heavens and the earth, spoke the earth into existence. That God lives in believers, including me. That blows me away. My friends, that same Holy Spirit that indwelt Peter on that day of Pentecost, if you're a believer in Jesus Christ, He's in you. He indwells you. He creates. He applies salvation. He also seals salvation. In Ephesians chapter 1, uh, in verse 14, Paul speaks of the, the Holy Spirit as the one that seals you, the believer, for that day of salvation. That once you believe, once you believe, you have the Holy Spirit. It isn't that you get a little bit of the Holy Spirit today and some more later on when something else happens to you. You have as much of the Holy Spirit, once you become a believer, you have as much of the Holy Spirit as you're ever going to have. You have all of the Holy Spirit, just as Peter had all of the Holy Spirit. There is no second blessing, no second coming, no second baptism of the Holy Spirit for the believer in Jesus Christ. There is none of that. And anyone that tells you otherwise is lying to you. They are not speaking truth from, from Scripture. 
There's only one baptism of the Holy Spirit. Once you become a believer in Jesus Christ, you've got all of the Holy Spirit you're ever going to have. And if that's not enough, my friends, there's no hope for you or for me. He is our seal. It isn't just that he seals us. It's that he is our seal. There's a difference there. You know, I can take a letter and I can put a wax seal on it and I'll put a seal on it, but you can open it up. You can break that seal. I'm not saying I am the seal. I just put a seal on that letter. The Holy Spirit doesn't just put a seal on you. He is the seal. He is the one that is your guarantee because he is in you. Nothing can separate you from the love of God in Christ Jesus. Let's go back to chapter 2 of Acts and verse verse 4. We'll talk more about the Holy Spirit as we go through the book of Acts. Verse 4, it says they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak in other tongues as the Spirit gave them utterance. So the Spirit is the one that's making this language come out of their mouths. You know, someone has asked, well, were they just hearing it in their own languages? Well, yeah, but they were hearing it in their own language because these, these guys were speaking it in different languages. So the, the Holy Spirit was giving utterance to those that were, that were there in the upper room and they were speaking in these different tongues and speaking in, in the tongues of Mesopotamia and Phrygia and Pamphylia and Pontus and Asia and Cappadocia, uh, the Elamites, the Medes, they were all hearing it in these individual distinct languages so the the holy spirit's giving utterance to these and it's a stamp that what they're saying is from god it's it's a it's a reversing of the tower of babel when when the language was confused and and the people couldn't find god in that way and so this is a reversal of that god's saying i'm here and this is my stamp They all heard in their own language. Some mocked, some believed. I want want you to know, listen, this is different. And we'll see this again in in the book of Acts a couple of times. But this is different than what Paul speaks of in 1 Corinthians 12, 13, and 14. Don't get these two things confused. This is a speaking in tongues that uh, that God used to initiate the church in, in this time that people might hear the gospel of Jesus Christ. Let me ask you something. If you're going to start the church, how are you going to do it? There's, there's folks here that have said, well, hey, there's, these guys are drunk. It's, it's only 9 o'clock in the morning. But they're drunk, and that's why they're babbling incoherently, and, and people are hearing it in different languages. Who are you going to put forth to argue against that? Who are you going to put forth on that platform on that day to tell people who this is and what's going on? You know, you might, you might grab your, great, your greatest orator. You know, you might grab somebody that can, uh, that can wow a crowd with their, with their ability to speak. Someone with great degrees. You might grab your greatest debater. Maybe you'd grab, you know, your most powerful person, someone that has the greatest power, the greatest wealth in the city because everybody's going to listen to them, right? <laughs> who are you going to grab to do that? I'll tell you who you're not going to grab. If you're designing it or I'm designing it, we're not going to grab an uneducated commercial fisherman who's been in an upper room with 120 other people and probably hasn't had a bath in 10 days. 
You're probably not. You're probably not going to grab a guy that just 53 days previously had said, I don't know the man. You're probably not going to grab that guy. We know that his command of language was not that great. We know that by reading First and Second Peter. I am so thankful that God has a way of using broken sticks to strike a straight blow and broken cisterns to pour out clean, clear, living water because that gives hope for people like me. God calls Peter broken, cowardly Peter to stand up on the temple steps in front of everybody and preach the first sermon of the church. Praise God that he does not do things the way that we might design them. In that crowd before Peter would have been Pharisees and Sadducees. They were there for Pentecost. These were great theologians. They knew the Old Testament better than Peter did, no doubt. And Peter's going to unfold the Old Testament prophecies, speaking from from Jude and Psalms in just a moment, and he's going to preach the gospel to these. These great theologians that had all this head knowledge. In this crowd, there would have been scribes and teachers of the law, men that that knew how how to put together a conspiracy and a plan to arrest Jesus in a garden and have him brought before Pilate and have him crucified. In this crowd would have been many of those that were present before Pilate on that night when Pilate tried to give Jesus back to the people. And they cried out, no, give us Barabbas. Keep Jesus. Give us Barabbas. In that crowd before Peter would have been some that said, in effect, kill Jesus. We want Barabbas, the thief, the insurrectionist. In this crowd before Peter would have been many who had killed Jesus Christ. Killing Peter would be nothing. It would have been so easy. This one who 53 days before had been a coward stands up with the courage from the filling of the Holy Spirit and he preaches the gospel of Jesus Christ in effect saying, you want to kill me? Take my life. But my love for Jesus Christ is greater than anything you could ever do to me. He loved God more than he loved them, more than he loved himself, and he loved them and their need for the gospel of Jesus Christ more than he loved his own comfort and safety. And so he stands up on the temple steps. What would you have done? What would you have done if you had been one of those 120 on that day? Would you have stood up? Would you have stood up? Would you? I think sometimes we're like Peter when he said, look, Jesus, even if all the rest of them walk away from you, I won't. I'm your man, Jesus. I'm your bro. I will stand with you. I will never deny you. And yet he denied Jesus three times. 
would you have stood up? I think we know best about what we would have done by looking at what we do. We know best about what we would have done by looking at what we do. And my friends, the vast majority of the church of Jesus Christ in our nation would not have stood up. And it's not so much because we're scared of of dying. It's we're scared of living with a label that Peter was glad to take. We're scared of losing a reputation. We don't want anyone calling us a Jesus freak. We're scared of losing a relationship. We, we don't stand up because we're afraid it might cost us money. We don't stand up because we're afraid it might cost us a job. Because we might lose family. You know what? I've lost all those things at different times in my life as I've followed Christ. All of those things. I can tell you that following Christ is worth it all. When you see someone come to know Jesus Christ, it's worth it all. Would you have stood up? You can know what you would have done by what you do. Peter stood up with the courage of the Holy Spirit. My friends, I have to tell you again, the same Holy Spirit that was in Peter on that day is in you. The very power that was displayed in Peter on that day at Pentecost is in you. No more, no less. Stand up. Not stand up for religion. Stand up for Jesus. Make a big deal out of Jesus Christ in your life. Peter stood up and he preached his first sermon. We're not going to go through the whole sermon word by word or verse by verse. We're going to look at it in total. He stands up and he says, hey, that's not new wine. It's only 9 o'clock in the morning. Let me tell you what it is. And he goes back to the book of Joel. And he gives them just a bit of the book of Joel. But the part that he gives them speaks to this part of, of, of what's going on in their world. Look at verse 17 of chapter 2. In the last days, that last days is that time between the first coming of Jesus Christ's death, resurrection, and the second coming of Jesus Christ. That's what scripture refers to as the last days. So he says, in the last days it shall be, God declares, that I will pour out my spirit, this Holy Spirit, on all flesh. Your sons and your daughters shall prophesy. Your young men shall see visions. Your old men shall dream dreams. Even on my male servants and my female servants, in those days I will pour out my spirit and they shall prophesy. He's saying this is what you're seeing. What Joel talked about in the Old Testament, this is the fulfillment of it. These are the last days. It's time. And he goes on. And he goes to Psalm chapter 16. And he, he, he talks about what David saw in one of his dreams and what David wrote about in Psalm 16. When, he, when, when David speaks of of seeing the Lord and how Hades and hell did not conquer the Lord. 
Peter reminds them, he says, remember when David said this? Our patriarch, David, the one we look to, David, our father David. Remember David when he said this? He wasn't talking about himself. He he tells him, look, you want David's tomb? It's here amongst us. David is dead. David is still buried. He's still in the tomb. There's one who is not. The one that David was speaking of is this one. It is Jesus Christ. Then in verse 36, he says, Let all the house of Israel therefore know for certain that God has made him both Lord and Christ, this Jesus whom you crucified. If Peter's worried about dying, it doesn't show. When he looked at these folks, he said, You crucified him. You killed him. You lawless men. You killed him. You did this. And when they heard this, verse 37 says they were cut to the heart. What's your reaction? Jesus died for us also. No, we weren't there physically in Jerusalem. We weren't part of the group physically that had him arrested or that had him killed on that day. But he died for us. For our sin. What's your reaction? The passage tells us in verse 37 that, that they, were, they were cut to the heart. And they asked Peter and the rest of the apostles, what should we do? What do we do now? In other words, we believe what you said, but what do we do about it? Peter, sweet, kind Peter, he knows what brokenness is all about. He knows what the need for forgiveness is all about. I love Peter's heart for for the gospel and for their souls. In verse 38, he says, Repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ, for the forgiveness of your sins, and you receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. Repent and be baptized. My friends, to to say repent is is not a harsh thing. To tell somebody repent in this way, it's an invitation. It's an invitation to follow Jesus Christ. It's an invitation to come to him. Jesus has come to me, all ye that are weary and heavy burden, and I will give you rest. When Jesus says, come to us, he's saying repent. Now, it's been said that repentance um, means just to stop what you're doing and turn around and march 180 degrees in the other direction. And yeah, that, that's a part of it. That's a, that's a part of it. That's a, but just a small part. To repent is to recognize that we, we need to repent first. To, to recognize that, we, that we've sinned, you've sinned, I've sinned, that we need to repent and that we need forgiveness. There, there's a deep sorrow. Look, it says they were cut to the heart. There's a deep sorrow over our sin. And then recognizing that there's a deep sorrow over our sin, that we've sinned and that Jesus Christ forgives us, then full of the power of the Holy Spirit who is in us, we walk in a new life as he's called us to. So repent is the first part of that. To be baptized is, is the second part of that. To be, to be baptized is to take the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. Yes, there's a physical baptism that takes place. It's an identification of yourself in the covenant of, of grace. And they're taking the name of, of the Lord Jesus Christ in this place. There's forgiveness of sin for all of those that, that would have been part of the, um, the conspiracy to have him killed. 
if they were amongst those 3,000 that repented or baptized, they get the forgiveness of sin. They're filled with the Holy Spirit. Yeah. Everyone that becomes a believer in Jesus Christ, the Lord God and the Holy Spirit lives in them. So what does this mean to us? Let me divide this into two parts, okay? What does this mean to those people that were there and to us, the people of God that are here in this room? First thing, if, if you're not a believer, then you're in the same place as those that were not believers on that day. If you're not a believer in Christ, you don't have a relationship with Christ, you don't have eternal life, you don't have the forgiveness of sins, you're not filled with the Holy Spirit. You don't have that. But that same invitation that Peter gave on that day is given to you. So what do you do? You repent and be baptized in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins. The same promise that he gave to them is for you. That you would have that salvation, that forgiveness of sins, and be filled with the Holy Spirit. And the Holy Spirit is your seal guaranteeing your redemption until the day you see Jesus Christ. There is eternal life offered to you. So what if you're here this morning and say, well, I'm already a believer. What does it mean for me? Well, it's more than a history lesson, folks. Please don't reduce this to a history lesson or something where you just fill in the blanks on a page. There's three things that, that I think you need to see here if you're a believer in Jesus Christ. First, you're, you're forgiven. You're forgiven. I don't know about you, but if you're like me, sometimes you forget that. Do you ever forget that? Do you ever act and live as if you're really not forgiven? Do the sins of your past haunt you? Do the sins that you're afraid that you might commit in the future haunt you? My, sin, my friends, if you're a believer in Jesus Christ, you are forgiven. Romans 8, 1, there is therefore now no condemnation of those who are in Christ Jesus. No condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. If you're a believer, those sins are gone. The power and penalty of sin is not your name anymore. Your name is Christian, follower of Jesus Christ, sealed by the Holy Spirit. You're forgiven. It's done. It's gone. And don't let anybody tell you differently. Your name is not sinner. Your name is is forgiven Christian second thing you're not alone if you're a believer in the Lord Jesus Christ then God himself lives in you and you will never be alone though you live in the darkest place on the earth and you're the only person there you are not alone because the creator of the heavens and the whole universe and earth the creator of everything that is lives in you you are not alone ever Though you be alone here, you're not alone. Third, you have the power to walk in newness of life. That same power, you receive power when the Holy Spirit comes upon you, you have that power in you. You have that power to walk past those four greatest idols of our, of our world these days, money, power, fame, and sex. Things, by the way, that, that we see in Scripture that God has given God gives power, God gives fame, God gives sex, God gives money, good things when used as God intended. 
We make them idols and we run after those things instead of running after God. They capture our attention. They capture our heart. They capture our mind. They capture our time. They can try to capture our life. Listen, if you're a believer in the Lord Jesus Christ, you have the power of the Holy Spirit in you to push past those things, to be done with those things. They will not be your idols any longer. Be done with them. Repent, believe, walk in newness of life. You have the power in the Holy Spirit to walk in newness of life. You have the power to walk in the great commission that is, the un, that is unfolding in the book of Acts, to be the witnesses of God in Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and to the ends of the earth. Let's pray. Father, Lord, thank you for your Holy Spirit. Lord, thank you for giving us the power to walk in newness of life. Thank you that we are not alone. Lord, thank you for the forgiveness of sins. Father, thank you for those that, are, that, are, that were unbelievers and that are not unbelievers anymore. Father, thank you for, for being here with us and not leaving us alone. Holy God, Lord, I pray that where we are captured by the stuff of earth, by sin, by our idolatries, where we have been unable to, to grab a hold of and, and believe that we're forgiven, Father, I pray that you'll help us in that. Father, I pray that you'll so move in our midst in this church Lord, that we will see your kingdom grow. We'll see your name glorified. Lord, help us to walk in newness of life in Jesus Christ our Lord. In his name we pray, amen.